Please turn again in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are plenty at the back. Help yourself. It will really be a big help to have 1 Corinthians 7 in front of you. The page numbers on the church Bibles are on that uh, pinkish sheet that you probably have. Here's a chapter about marriage and about whether to get married. That makes it very practical. That makes it very relevant. But it's also a chapter that uses the subject, marriage, to teach us some more general lessons. Like, what do you do when you're faced with a decision and the Bible doesn't seem to say something about it? Maybe it's an issue that didn't even exist in Bible times. How do you make your decision? How do you work out what God wants? Now that makes it a a useful chapter for all of us, whether married or considering married or not. But it also must be admitted it's a difficult chapter. This is a difficult chapter. So I want to briefly remind you of part of my introduction I had two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I said to get this chapter right, you need a good understanding of what the Bible is. It contains writings about specific situations. So here in front of us, we have a letter written to a church an actual church in history that faced specific situations and had even written to the Apostle Paul asking questions. That's why, verse 1, he refers to what they've written. They've clearly asked him some questions and now he's answering them. That means we need to do a bit of detective work trying to figure out what's the situation, what's the question, what's the issue going on behind the scenes to get the meaning of this chapter right. We don't have a Muslim doctrine of scripture. They claim their scripture just sort of dropped out of the sky to Muhammad and he just wrote it down. It's nonsense. It's easy to show up that that's wrong. But our doctrine of scripture is nothing like that. It was written by specific people in specific circumstances. And we need to try to work out and understand those. But... God has then put it in the Bible as his perfect message for humans for all time. And that means it's our guide for life. But to get your guide right, well, we've got to put what we've got here in chapter 7 together with other parts of the Bible. You won't get God's message for marriage from 1 Corinthians 7 on its own. You'd get a very distorted view of marriage if you just went by chapter 7 on its own. You'd really go wrong a long way. You need to put it together with things like Genesis 2, the essence of marriage, and the Song of Songs, the enjoyment of marriage, and Ephesians 5, different roles within marriage. By the way, I'm not going to do that this evening, but you do need to take that into account. Don't get all your marriage guidance from chapter 7. It's not meant to go on its own. Now, let's get into, this evening we've got on to the second half of chapter 7, from verse 25 to the end. I am not pretending I'm going to cover all of this this evening. And my plan is next week to move on, so we won't have done all of chapter 7. And if you're concerned about any of the things I haven't covered, um, and if you suspect it's because they're really hard and I might not be sure about them, you might be right, that you can ask me about them another time. What I'm going to do is pick out three specific lessons about marriage from this half of the chapter and then a general lesson behind them. 
Okay, so I'm not pretending I'm covering it all. Pick out three specific lessons about marriage and then a general lesson behind them. First specific lesson about marriage. In some situations, being unmarried is better. In some situations. The Corinthians had asked Paul, is it better not to be married? Verse 1. They were saying it's good for a man not to marry, literally for a man not to touch a woman. They said it's good not to touch a woman. Now, Paul thinks sometimes it is, but not for the reasons they thought. If you remember last week, and sorry, I'm not going to go over it again. If you remember last week's illustration of a road with two ditches, he wants to keep them out of both ditches. In what situation does he think being unmarried is better? Let's let's get some evidence. Let's put together some verses from chapter 7. Verse 26, because of the present crisis, there's some sort of crisis going on in Corinth or maybe wider than Corinth, maybe the ancient world. We don't know. What we do know is the word can be translated distress. And the word means something is really constraining life at that time and making it difficult. Now, marriage often has troubles. Verse 28 sounds rather pessimistic about marriage, doesn't it? Put it together with the rest of the Bible or you'll get a distorted view. Married people, verse 28, will get lots of troubles. I notice we have some people here considering marriage. This is not supposed to put you off. Put it together with the rest of the Bible. But marriage does have troubles and it will particularly do so in times of crisis. And Corinth seems to be hitting a, facing a time of crisis. And that's because when you're married, you are not just responsible for you. You are responsible for your spouse and possibly children also. You've got them to think about. That's verse 33 and verse 34. A married man has to think about his wife. And verse 34, because we have here a very symmetrical chapter in the way it treats men and women, a married woman has to consider her husband. And so, particularly in the time of crisis, they're going to have some troubles. So, is this just teaching for people in Corinth in a very short-term situation back then? And we can just ignore it. No, no. Because it's a fallen world where we should expect troubles. And we saw in the first half of chapter 7 two weeks ago, being married is good, but in a fallen world it has troubles. Being unmarried is good, but in a fallen world it has troubles. And it's important we put it that way, not the way it's often put, being married is good and being unmarried is a trouble. No, they're both good, but they both have troubles in a fallen world. And not only is it a fallen world, it's a world that is passing away. Do you see that in verse 31? Verse 31, it's a world that's passing away. And we've got urgent work to do, bringing the gospel to this world that's passing away. And verse 29 says the time's short. The time is short. There's limited time to bring the gospel to dying people in a dying world. And so Paul doesn't want people to be distracted in that time of trouble they're facing when marriage could be an extra pressure on them. Now, let's try to put that together. The Corinthians are saying being unmarried is good. And Paul is saying, yes, for some of you, 
but not for the reasons you think. It's not that being married is unspiritual or inferior in any way. No, it's simply that in some circumstances, you're better able to serve the Lord by being unmarried. Now, let's think what what that might mean in 2022. What those circumstances might be. Paul says in, in verse 26 that the church is distressed at the time. There's a distress pressurizing the church at the time. Well, when is the church or where is the church distressed today? Here's an example. Tough estates in cities. Tough estates in cities in the UK. The church is mainly in the leafy suburbs like we're in. Isn't it? Isn't that true? The church is mainly in the leafy suburbs. Like here, so many tough city estates have no gospel witness. That should distress, that's a distressing situation. So, I remember a Christian from a posh background, went to one of the top private schools in the country, saying that's where we should be going as Christians. We should be going and living in the tough estates. And I remember a Christian who was from a tough estate but had moved out saying rather gruffly, all very well for you saying that, but it's your wife and children who will bear the brunt of the difficulty living there. Now, who are you with? The posh person or the person from the tough background? I would say... There's something 1 Corinthians 7-like about this. I'm not saying that married Christians should not move onto those tough estates. But there are 1 Corinthians 7-style advantages to unmarried Christians moving in. That's something worth considering. Late teens, early 20s, unmarried people. Could that be a way you serve the Lord? Here's another example. The church is in distress today across vast areas of Central Asia. It is said that in eastern Turkey there are three million people per evangelist. I think that's disastrous. If there were three million people per doctor, that would be a humanitarian crisis. But not everyone needs a doctor. Everyone does need the gospel. Three million people per evangelist. And I suspect if you moved east from East Turkey, it would get worse than that. The need for missionaries has not gone away. But that's a need that is sometimes better met in some ways if you're unmarried. I'll give you an example. William Carey was pioneer missionary to India. What an amazing man. It was amazing how much he did to reach Indians with the gospel, to fight against injustice, to get the Bible translated into tens of languages. Amazing man, hero of the faith. But should he have gone to India? I wonder if he shouldn't have gone to India. Well, I find that difficult to say what a hero of the faith he was. Why would I suggest maybe he shouldn't have gone to India? Because his wife was dead against it. And it damaged her severely. There he was doing this amazing work, bringing the gospel to Indians, while his family were under tremendous pressure. Such that his wife had a complete mental breakdown that she never recovered from. In in their old-fashioned language then, she went insane and stayed that way until it killed her. I wonder if William Carey shouldn't have actually gone to India. Strange and difficult, although it is to say it because he was such a hero. 
Am I saying married couples should not be missionaries? No. Am I putting pressure on unmarried couples? You ought to be missionaries. No. But I'm saying there are many situations and needs in the world where there is a one Corinthian, unmarried people might have one Corinthians 7 style advantages. Ways that they can more effectively serve the Lord. Unmarried people consider that as you consider how you may serve the Lord. That's the first specific lesson about marriage. Here's the second specific lesson about marriage. Married people cannot act like unmarried people. Married people cannot act like unmarried people. Now, to get this point, I first need to make sure we don't misunderstand verse 29, because verse 29 looks like the complete opposite to what I've just said. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should should live as if they had none. It's really important we see Paul is using a figure of speech to make a point. Do not take that literally. It would be a disaster if married men acted as if they didn't have a wife. It's a bit like this. Children, I'm sure you use figures of speech, don't you? Sometimes you might on a January day come inside and say, oh, I'm freezing. But you don't mean that your blood is turning to ice. I'm sure that's never happened to you. I know it's never happened to you. You'd be dead. You'd be making a point about how cold it is. But we all, all of us have probably at some time said, I'm freezing. We're always using figures of speech. And there's a figure of speech here. We know that because in verses 2 to 6, Paul has said to the married people, you must not act as if you're unmarried. You must not give up on your married responsibilities. You must keep at them. Here, in verse 29, he's warning about the worldliness ditch. Sorry if you weren't here last week, I can't go through the ditches illustration again. But he's, he's warning about the worldliness ditch. Marriages that are self-absorbed. People who are taken up with this life as if it will last forever. He's using a figure of speech to drag them out of that ditch. Don't be so self-absorbed. Don't act as if this life will last forever and it's everything. If you are married, you must not have an inward-focused, self-absorbed marriage. But you also cannot act like an unmarried person. That's verse 33 and 34. I'll read them again. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. You can, if you are married, you cannot act like an unmarried person. Now, why do I bother saying that? Because we, those of us who are married sometimes do. I'll give you a made-up example, but it's based on real-life examples. Gary is always talking about his ministry. He loves to tell you about his ministry. I've got to give time to my ministry. Now, what does he mean? He means open-air preaching. He's really into open-air preaching. He always likes to refer to that as his ministry and talk about his ministry. Now, that can be a good thing, open-air preaching. I'm not knocking open-air preaching. But the trouble is, 
his wife is neglected. Because he thinks of open-air preaching as his ministry, his main way of serving. And he's always off doing it, and he's away from the home so much. Whereas actually, being a good husband should be his main way of serving, and he should be at home more. Now, as I say, I've made up an example there, the name and the specific open-air preaching, but there are it's based on many real-life examples. Maybe the problem here is that we tend to value what can be seen. Activities that can be seen, particularly at church, that others notice. Not the unseen serving of the Lord that happens in the home and in family life. 1 Corinthians 7 might seem to reinforce those distorted values if we took it on its own. But if we read the rest of the Bible and see what a high value is given to family life and serving in the home, well, we'd see married people must not be like Gary. Too many husbands get married and carry on as if they're unmarried. The same patterns of being away from home, too much, the same use of time, and wives get neglected, and verse 33 and 34 say, you can't be like that, it's wrong. If you're married, don't carry on like an unmarried person. Now, I've said husbands, maybe there are wives that also are like that, but the examples I've come across have consistently been husbands. But wives, do take notice in case you're like that. Third specific lesson. Here's the third specific lesson about marriage. Don't marry an unbeliever. Simple one. Don't marry an unbeliever. Now, do remember verse 12 and 13, which we saw last week, say, if you are already married to an unbeliever, stick with it. Stick with the marriage. Verse 12 and 13 say, that marriage to an unbeliever does not pollute you. God can still bless you. That marriage can still be pleasing to him and fruitful. If you're already married to an unbeliever, stick with them. But when choosing who to marry, in a different situation, when choosing who to marry, God's word to you is in verse 39. Verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Do you see the limits put? There's freedom. Marry anyone she wishes, but there's limits. He must belong to the Lord. That's just a very brief phrase. He must belong to the Lord, but it's like the tip of an iceberg because it's, it rests on big biblical principles. I'll just give you a couple of examples of those big big biblical principles. In Genesis 2, God invented marriage. And he invented marriage so the husband and wife would help each other serve God together. That's what it means when it says it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not really about loneliness. It's about supporting each other, serve God together. But an unbeliever is not going to have that motive for marriage. Whatever motive the unbeliever has, it's not going to be so I can support my spouse as we serve the Lord together. And that means you'll end up in a situation described in 2 Corinthians 6, where it says, don't get yoked to an unbeliever. Now, what's a yoke, children? 
It isn't a yellow bit and an egg. Well, not spelt like this. It's a bar across the shoulders of some oxen. And they'd have this bar across this oxen as they together pull the plough. But what happens if there's a bar across the shoulders of two oxen and one oxen is determined to plough the fields and the other oxen is determined to lie down and eat grass? Or grass, if you're from Loughborough. The ploughing's not going to happen, is it? The ploughing just isn't going to happen. They're unequally yoked and it's going to be tension and difficulty and unproductive. And so, 1 Corinthians 7 says to you, if you're unmarried, if you, if you then choose to marry an unbeliever, if a believer chooses to marry an unbeliever, you are doing the opposite to the concern of chapter 7. And the concern of chapter 7 is verse 35, undivided devotion to the Lord. And you're doing the opposite to that. And so the The lesson here is very simple, don't marry an unbeliever. Or, to put it another way, if you've got an unbelieving girlfriend or boyfriend, break it off as soon as possible. The longer you leave it, the harder it will be. Break it off as soon as possible. I know there's an awful lot more to be said about how you break it off and how you handle that, but I can't say that tonight. And it doesn't change this. Break it off as soon as possible. Don't marry an unbeliever. Right, we've had three specific lessons about marriage. I'm not claiming I've covered the whole chapter. I know there's bits I've missed out. But I want to get on to a general lesson that lies behind them. Let's get a general lesson. When you read the Bible, of course, you must look at the specific meanings of the words. But do you look at the tone as well? Do you pick up the tone of the passage? Have you noticed how different Paul's tone is in chapter 7 from normal? It's not his normal tone. Let's think about his normal tone. For example, in chapter 1, he is so definite. He says, Jesus must be the centre of everything. No debate, no ifs, no buts. Jesus is the centre. In chapter 5, he's so definite They are not doing church discipline. And he lays down the law. Verse 13, expel the wicked man from among you. No ifs, no buts, do it. In chapter 6, they are messing around with sexual immorality. And Paul doesn't beat about the bush. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't tarry, don't argue, just flee from it. He's so definite. And then in chapter 7, his tone is so different. Did you notice it? I'll give you two examples. Verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment. Not meaning like a judge sitting in, in, in his chair, but just let's work out what's right here. And I'm doing it as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Very interesting way of describing himself. Not as one who's really gifted teacher, but by the Lord's mercy, I'm trustworthy. Or or look at verse 40. Look at the tone here. Talking about whether a widow should remarry or not. He says, in my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. In my judgment, I think she'll be happier if she stays unmarried. Now, he never says that if you're playing around with sexual immorality. He doesn't say, in my judgment... You would be happier if you didn't do sexual immorality. 
No, he says, flee sexual immorality and stop messing about. Do you see, the tone is so different. Let's think about those tones. Here is the difference between a theological liberal and a theological fundamentalist. By the way, if you don't know those labels, don't worry. I think it will become clear in the next few sentences. To a theological liberal, everything is a secondary issue. Don't you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, well, you know, never mind. Are you sleeping with your girlfriend? Oh, well, I disagree with you on that, but let's not fall out on it. That's a theological liberal. Everything's secondary. We don't need to fall out over it. A theological fundamentalist, nothing is secondary. Do you disagree with me over the mode of baptism? You're a heretic. Get out of the church. That's a theological fundamentalist. Nothing is secondary. Now, Paul isn't a liberal or a fundamentalist. Do you notice that? There are issues he's so definite and so strong about, he calls down curses on anyone who preaches a gospel that isn't all about trusting in Jesus. But here in chapter 7, his tone changes. He's giving advice. But he says there's Christian freedom about what to do. He says in some situations, get married, that's good. Don't get married, that's better. Either way, you're not sinning. You see, his tone is so different. He says, there is freedom on these matters. Christian freedom. When is there Christian freedom about what we should do? Oh, it's very simple. The answer is in verse 25. Verse 25. It's when God hasn't given a command. There are some things God hasn't given commands about. He doesn't want robots who just all the time get out the manual and say, right, what should I do? Okay, do that. Good, done it. There are some issues God hasn't given a command. And we mustn't make up commands. The Christian has freedom on those matters. But when we face an issue where God hasn't commanded, does the Bible give any help to us? Yes, that's what all of chapter 7 is about. Chapter 7 is about modelling to us how we work out what is wise. It's about modelling wise living where God hasn't given a specific command. It gives us principles. Obviously, I can't go through all of them now, but I'll give you some examples. It gives us principles like verse 31. Remember, it's a passing world. Don't get too taken up with it. Don't let it control you. Think eternally. It's one of the principles of wise living. Another principle of wise living is behind verse 36, which is basically know yourself. Who are you? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your sins that you struggle with? Chapter 7 makes clear the wise answer is not the same for everyone. Some people in verse 8 are better off staying unmarried. Some people in verse 9 should get married. The wise answer is not the same for everyone. Know yourself. And above all, the principle above all is in the end of verse 35. Devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion to the Lord. Does it help me serve the Lord? That's the ultimate question behind wise living. Does it help me serve the Lord? It, by the way, sometime if you get, get a chance, scan through chapter 7 and see how many times the Lord is repeated. The Lord. So many times Paul says the Lord, because behind all this chapter is Jesus is Lord. 
The wisest life, the happiest life, the life worth living is a life of devotion to Jesus as Lord. So here in chapter 7, the tone changes because there are some things God gives commands on. There are some things that are a matter of wise living. And there are some things that are just completely free. I try to show that in a diagram. You look, can we trying to show on here in chapter seven. There, now, that diagram I hope is going to make sense to you. The big circle is all the choices we face in life. We face many choices. Some of them, the little circle, are covered by God's commands, but not all of them. Some of them are covered by whether it's wise or unwise, but not all of them. There are some that are outside the circle of God's commands, and they're a matter of wise living. And there are some that are even outside the circle of whether it's wise or unwise, and they're just indifferent. Let's try to get some examples. Considering whether you should get a job as a secretary or a soldier, which circle would it come in? Have a think. Let's not do sort of answering up now in case we get it wrong. Considering whether to be a secretary or a soldier, I'd say that comes under wise or unwise. I don't think there are any commands telling you not to do either of them in the Bible. A pacifist might disagree. But there's certainly wisdom needed because there's all sorts of issues, for example, um, with being a soldier. And are you going to be called to kill someone in a war that maybe your country might fight unjustly. Whether to wear red or blue socks, ah, it's just in the choices we face. There is no wisdom issue, as far as I'm aware. I don't know, I'm told sometimes the colours I wear clash badly, but I think that's too tiny to be counted as a wisdom issue. It's just an indifferent choices we face. Watching films with sex and nudity in them, which circle? Commands. I would say that's God's commands because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18 says flee from sexual immorality and you are not obeying that command if you're sitting there watching sex and nudity. It's a matter of God's commands, not just wisdom. So I hope you get an idea how to use that diagram. Let's keep it up and think about marriage. What's that diagram doing in 1 Corinthians 7? It's like this. A Christian wondering about marrying an unbeliever. Well, that's in the small circle because we have a command from God. Verse 39, you are only to marry someone who belongs to the Lord if you belong to the Lord. What about a Christian wondering about marrying a believer, but also thinking God has called me to be a missionary in Afghanistan? Well, that's in the wise or unwise circle. And 1 Corinthians 7 has something to say about, is, are those two things going to match? Are you going to be able to serve your husband or wife and serve the Lord as a missionary in that dangerous place? That may not be wise. But are you a believer considering marriage and you've obeyed God's commands and you're marrying a believer and you've considered the wisdom issues and you've wisely thought about, are the two of you compatible? Well, then you're in the outer circle. It's just a free choice. We can, we can remove the diagram now, thank you, Eula. Because chapter 7 says something very simple in verse 39. And something very freeing. Do you notice it? Verse 39, 
But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. You notice it doesn't say as long as he, he's got to belong to the Lord and then she must spend time in agonized trying to work out what God's will is for her. And is this man the one for her? You notice it doesn't say that. She's got to spend time in agonized trying to work out. Is this the one? God must have one person he wants me to marry. Yeah, that's right. And he knows the one person I'm going to marry. Yes, that's right. So I've now got to spend time in agonized working out. Is this the one? No. Is this right? God has got everything planned. His secret world covers every detail. But you cannot know God's secret will in advance. What you can know in advance is his revealed will. And here it is in 1 Corinthians 7. Marry a believer and be wise about the choice. And if you've done both of those, then verse 39, marry whoever you wish. It's up to you. Don't need to spend time in agony over it. Do what is wise. Obey God. And outside those two circles, and we must maintain there are choices outside those circles, there is such a thing as Christian freedom. And we must guard Christian freedom. Well, this evening, God has taught us some specific lessons about marriage. Take notice of both his commands and his wisdom. And while doing so, God has also shown us how to approach decisions we face. But behind it all has been Jesus is Lord. Verse 35 is the key thing. It's all about devotion to him, undivided devotion to him. Are you devoted to him? Is your life all about serving him? You will, your life will be about serving someone or something. That's unavoidable. You will be devoted to someone or something. That's unavoidable. And there's no Lord as good as Jesus. Be devoted to him. Let's pray.